Our confessional reading is Lord's Day 20. That Lord's Day reads as follows. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me, and to remain with me forever. After the sermon, we'll sing in response Psalm 42, stanza 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in the age of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out by the ascended Christ in the fullness of his grace and power. His activity of renewing and sanctifying is worldwide. He has come down upon all flesh for the fulfillment of the Father's promise to the Son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In the old dispensation, we see chiefly the activity of God the Father, creating the world, meeting with Abraham, speaking to Moses, delivering Israel from bondage, fighting their battles. Then in the fullness of time, we see especially the activity of God the Son. Jesus went about all Galilee and Judea, preaching the kingdom and healing all the sick who were brought to him. He spent his earthly ministry not only teaching and healing, but gathering disciples, fulfilling the righteousness of God's law and bearing his wrath. In the new covenant, after Christ's ascension into heaven, it's the activity of God, the spirit, which predominates. This is his period in the history of redemption, if we could put it that way. He's intensely busy working faith in the hearts of God's people, teaching them by his word, assuring them by his sacraments, dispensing many gifts to the church, crucifying our sinful flesh. In a word, he's imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing of our sin and the daily renewal of our lives. There's a ton of work with which he's busy every single day. And not just in the world and in the church, but in my personal life as well. That element permeates this entire Lord's Day. He is also given to me to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to abide, to remain with me forever. This afternoon we want to focus on one activity of the Spirit, which is of tremendous comfort to us, his praying in our hearts. And so I proclaim to you the word of God as summarized in this Lord's Day and revealed in Romans 8, the verses 26 and 27, under the following theme. The Holy Spirit intercedes for me with groanings too deep for words. And we'll see three things, the need for, content of, and the hearing of the Spirit's intercession. Romans 8, brothers and sisters, is overflowing with references to the Spirit's work in the life of God's people. 
In this chapter, Paul continues to speak about the new life of the believers. And so he must introduce the Spirit of God. He's the one who spiritually raises us from the dead. He gives us the life that is in Christ, the new life of the resurrection. And that cannot be otherwise because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Paul tells us that in verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. He assures the beleaguered Christians in Rome that they are in the Spirit. They have been set free from the law of sin and death in order to live according to the Spirit. All who are led by Him are sons of God. Now this spiritual guidance... It's not anything like the Pentecostals would have us believe through special revelations such as visions, trances, and flights into heaven. Paul's referring to the whole of Christian life, a life in which Jesus Christ comes first. Being led by the Spirit then means knowing yourself to be dependent on God, needing Him, In all things, asking for his counsel, confessing your sin, setting your compass by the word of the Lord. Besides leading us, the Spirit also bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 16. Spirit of truth approaches the throne of our Heavenly Father together with us and he speaks the truth. He says, Father, this child belongs to you. He strives to do your will. He wants to serve you. I know because I dwell in his heart. But there's more that the Spirit does. He not only leads us in the struggle against sin and witnesses with us before the Father, he also helps us. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? By interceding, by praying for us with groanings too deep for words. And Paul points out that this is necessary because of our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. If our prayers were always pure and pleasing to God, there would be no need for the Spirit's intercession. As it is, however, We stand in dire need of it. Part of the reason for that is believers don't always cling to the hope of glory in the midst of suffering. Prior to our text, Paul encourages the church at Rome, telling them that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to them. And yet, because the distress endured for the sake of Christ, and on account of sin is so heavy, and at times bewildering, we become perplexed and speechless to the point that we don't know how to pray properly. Suffering gets the upper hand and and limits our vision. As a result, we no longer groan inwardly about our sonship, expecting the redemption of our bodies. You see, the young congregation in Rome did not have it easy. There was persecution from the Jews and from the state. 
the horrible abuses they had to endure are well documented. Confessing Christ as king brought the church into conflict with those promoting the cult of the Caesar, emperor worship. What did such people who were facing martyrdom for the testimony of Jesus have to pray for? Do they pray for the redemption of their bodies or for patience and endurance in affliction? Should they beseech God to stop the persecution or ask him for inner strength and peace? You might say, well, it's simple, really. The Lord Jesus told his church that she would be persecuted for his sake. They knew that they could expect such treatment. So it's obvious they should have known that they had to pray for steadfastness. While it's easy for us to say that in a time of security and affluence. But when your children are about to be thrown to the lions. And someone tells you that if you deny Jesus you can save them from death. The temptation is there to pray or or even to demand in fear and in anger that God take away such senseless suffering. You become totally absorbed with the present. You have no eye for the fullness of redemption that's coming on the last day. Paul himself was not immune to that sort of prayer. To keep him from becoming too excited by the abundance of revelations, he was given a thorn in his flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment him. Whatever that affliction was, It gave him agony. So much so that three times he prayed, Lord, take it away from me. Then Paul had to learn. He had to be told by God, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Yes, in times of suffering, the church more easily prays for deliverance, for the lifting of her cross, than for heartfelt submission to the will of God. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. And that weakness shows itself not just in times of adversity, but our whole life through. If I think that my prayer is always in accordance with the will of God, I am deceiving myself. That attitude in itself is proof that a person doesn't know the will of God, nor the extent of his own depravity. We admit that the content of our prayers isn't always 100% in harmony with God's revealed will. And by acknowledging that, we're not saying that there's nothing good in our prayers. And that therefore there's no use praying. On the contrary, God commands us to call on him. Nevertheless, with respect to our prayer life, it must be confessed that we have only a small beginning of that new obedience. Wrong priorities, unbalanced emphases can defile our prayers. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. Those words, as we ought, are literally as it is necessary, indicating that there is a fixed and known standard according to which we must pray. 
The Catechism in Lord's Day 45 expands on that when it asks, what belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him? The disciples reckon with that. That's why they said, Lord, teach us to pray. There are carefully defined regulations for a pleasing prayer. And indeed, God has made that clear in his word. There he makes known to us the promises of the gospel, which form the content of our prayers, and the sacrifice of Christ, which forms the basis for our petitions. The more we search the scriptures, the deeper our understanding of God's word, the better equipped we will be to pray as we ought. And yet, we remain weak in our prayer, praying. We have such a cramped understanding of and, and limited insight into the promises of our Heavenly Father. We don't thoroughly know our need and misery so that we always humble ourselves before God. We don't know either what God has planned for our lives. And so when he sends sickness or a handicap or poverty, the inclination is there to debate with God whether such trials are for our benefit. What kind of blessing can there be in being confined to a wheelchair, in not receiving children, in watching our spouse suffer from Alzheimer's or in having a child taken away in its infancy? How does that promote our salvation? Our misery and sorrow can sometimes be so overwhelming that we simply do not know how to say it in words. We find it difficult to even talk about, never mind to speak to God as he commands us in his word. Even our best prayers are soiled and smeared with sin, aren't they? How frequently we pray with a divided heart. One half speaking to God, the other half busy pursuing our own interests. Or we pray like the Pharisees, heaping up beautiful phrases in order to be praised by men. We are delinquent often in bringing before the throne of grace the needs of the church, the anxieties and concerns of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We fail to be steadfast in praying for the coming of God's kingdom, for the pouring out of his judgments over the world, and so you could go on. Why do we not know what to pray for as we ought? Because of our sinful nature. To borrow Paul's explanation from the seventh chapter of this letter, I see in my members another law, at war with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. Yes, we are in the Spirit, but we still have to struggle every day, every moment of every day, against the lusts of the flesh, a flesh that is hostile to God and opposed to His Word. And that's why we let things like external circumstances and selfish desire sometimes determine our petitions. The Lord has not left us to forge our own way 
in our prayer life. His word also in this respect is a light and a lamp. It shows us clearly the path of prayer. Besides that, he's also given us his spirit who illumines our minds and opens our heart to the word. We have all that we need, the word and the spirit. Nevertheless, even though God tells us this is how you must pray, and even though his spirit gives us insight so that we see the glory of his kingdom and the power of his might, our prayers are still imperfect and incoherent and impure. And now exactly here, the comfort of Lord's Day 20 shines through. The Spirit, knowing our weakness, helps us. He intercedes for us. And with that, we come to the second point, the content of his intercession. The Spirit himself intercedes. This isn't the same, brothers and sisters, as the witnessing which the Spirit does with our spirit, as Paul writes in verse 16. That word witness is a judicial one. It refers to the fact that the Spirit, as a witness for the crown, affirms our testimony before the Father. He knows us through and through, and so he can give a complete and true testimony of us. But when the Spirit prays, he lays before God the deep and hidden needs of our heart. He helps us in our weakness of not knowing what to pray for as we ought. He helps us. Paul uses a double compound verb in the original, which is striking. It means to lend a hand together or to be at the same time with someone. It occurs only here and in Luke 10, where Martha pleads for Mary to help her. Paul beautifully pictures the Holy Spirit grasping us, holding fast to us at the very moment of our weakness before it's too late. The word gives the connotation not merely of taking care of us, but of devoting himself to us. With that strong verb, Paul assures us that we can be certain of the Spirit's timely help from his side. He intervenes so that our groaning is strengthened, so that we long to be free of the power of sin and death and to receive the fullness of the inheritance that we have as children of God. He intercedes, says Paul, with groanings too deep for words. Literally, it says, with unutterable sighs. What does that mean? Well, a sigh comes from the bottom of your heart. There's nothing fake or superficial about it. In the Bible, the word sighing is used to describe prayers that are so powerful, so moving and full and deep that they cannot be put in words. Let me give you a few examples. When Israel was being oppressed in Egypt, they groaned, they sighed under their bondage and cried out for help. And their cry under bondage came up to God, and God heard their sighing. When Jesus was about to heal a deaf man, we're told in Mark 7, that looking up to heaven, he sighed. 
He prayed powerfully to God and then spoke the word of healing. In our scripture readings afternoon, we came across the same word as used here for the spirit, but then for the believers. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we sigh, we groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit knows. And he comes to our aid. He prays with sighs too deep for words. That doesn't mean that his intercession is unspoken. It's beyond words. So powerful and tender. Perhaps he speaks in a language that Paul heard when God took him into the third heaven. When he was caught up into paradise, he heard things which cannot be told, which man cannot utter. It's not possible to put in human words what the Spirit says to the Father. What is it that the Spirit prays for? What's the content of his intercession? Admittedly, that's not explicitly stated here. But certainly it cannot be divorced from his work here on earth. He takes everything out of Christ. As Jesus himself told his disciples, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives, that's the content of his intercession. Everything revolves around that. Christ must increase in our lives. We must decrease. When our tainted prayers ascend to the throne, then he sends up his perfect prayer. Deal with them in accordance with your great mercy in Jesus Christ. This constant intercession of the Spirit doesn't render us inactive. You may not think, I don't have to pray because the Holy Spirit will do it for me. Not at all. The command to seek God's face remains. Instead, we let the Spirit teach us from the Word how and why and what we have to pray. We strive to pray as we ought. Yes, the painful thought is there that we can never do it without sin. Nevertheless, we have the comfort that we never enter into the presence of the Father alone. And that gives us the courage to pray without ceasing. I don't plead before the throne of grace all by my lonesome self. The Comforter is right there with me. And he pleads along with me. I'm weak, but he is strong. I pray haltingly, unable to fully tell the Father what he wants to hear. I come before him with incomplete petitions, embarrassed and ashamed that I have not requested what he promised in his word. How often, brothers and sisters, have you not thought after opening your eyes, again it wasn't as it should have been. I've asked for the fulfillment of my own material needs and completely forgotten the cause of God's kingdom. How selfish and sinful of me. How can God ever hear my prayers? Well, use these words from Romans as a spur 
toward prayer. The Spirit Himself intercedes for you. He prays in, with, and for us to God. And His prayers are without spot or wrinkle. He brings our prayers to the Most High and purifies them so that they're pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, that was symbolized, as you know, by the sweet-smelling incense in the tabernacle. In the same way, the Spirit mingles His prayer with ours. We're, We're dealing in this Lord's Day with God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification, aren't we? Well, part of that sanctification includes the sanctification of our prayers. He makes them holy. He puts our petitions in the proper order. He presents them pure and without blemish before the Father. He knows what our trials and temptations are. He knows what is needed the most in our lives in order for God and his anointed to be glorified. Just as a child who's very ill, lying on his deathbed, unconscious perhaps, and unbeknownst to him, has parents bowed down at the foot of his bed, praying fervently to God, sighing to him, so we, who are spiritually ill, have in us the Spirit of God, who doesn't tire of interceding for us. As long as we accept the promises of the gospel with a believing heart, he keeps praying for us. He perseveres in his intercession. Nothing and no one can distract him. And his prayers are always holy and right. How rich we are compared to the world. Above us we have Christ who pleads for us on the foundation of his perfect sacrifice. In us, we have the Spirit of Christ, who not only makes us cry out, Abba, Father, but who helps us in our weakness, praying for us and with us. The world, on the other hand, is so impoverished. Above them they have a God who is a consuming fire. And in them rules the spirit of this age who is driving them toward eternal destruction. That doesn't make us haughty or proud as if we deserve what we have. Absolutely not. We we receive the riches of Christ including the gift of the promised Holy Spirit only out of grace. And that gift comes with a warning. Do not resist the Spirit or quench Him. Do not grieve Him or outrage Him or blaspheme Him. We must let the Spirit work in us and continually beg God for Him. If not, then our prayers will indeed be hindered. They become a stench in God's nostrils and will fall down on our heads like a curse. Perhaps the question arose in your mind, but how can I be certain that the Holy Spirit is praying within me? This activity of His, after all, is hidden and mysterious. It's not like I can hear an audible voice next to mine when I pray. How do I know that He's daily interceding for me? An important question, but one which is answered by your confession 
Lord's Day 20 tells us that the Spirit of God is given to me to make me by a true faith share in Christ and all his benefits. You have the Spirit. That reality is signified and sealed to every one of you in your baptism. With that sacrament, we have the pledge that he will dwell in us and impart to us what we have in Christ. He makes us live our lives outside of ourselves in Christ. He makes us sing with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, O God, that I desire beside you. The fact that we belong to Christ, that we're living members of this body, is proof enough that we have the Spirit within us. For the blood and the Spirit cannot be separated. Those purchased with the blood of Christ are sealed with His Spirit. It is in those who confess Christ as their only and complete Savior that the Spirit prays with sighing. As if that's not comforting enough, our text reveals yet that the Spirit's intercession will be heard by God. The last point. The certainty of hearing also applies to our prayers, brothers and sisters, by virtue of the fact that the Spirit intercedes for us. Paul touches on that in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. The one who searches our hearts is God the Father. David acknowledged that exclusive and sovereign power of God in Psalm 139. O Lord, my God, my heart and mind are known to you. Jesus, our Savior, has the same ability. In his letter to the church at Thyatira, he writes, I will strike Jezebel's children dead, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Let those words have their full effect on us. We can't hide anything from God. Not even the deepest secrets of our heart. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. He's got x-ray vision. He can see right through us. God's thorough searching isn't limited. He searches the hearts of all men Also of believers in whom the Spirit has made his home. And what does he discover? Much sin. Wrongly motivated prayers. But thankfully that's not all. He also sees his own spirit dwelling in our hearts. He hears his intercession welling up from within. He understands those sighs too deep for words. It's the language the Father himself speaks. Even more than that, he knows the mind of the Spirit. Another way of translating that is, he knows the aspiration, the outlook of the Spirit. And how can the Father not know the aspirations of the Spirit when the Spirit proceeds from the Father? As we confess in the Nicene Creed. What are the grounds for this hearing? That's dealt with in the last part of our text. The first ground for the certainty of hearing the Spirit's intercession is that he prays according to the will of God. In other words, everything he prays 
is in complete harmony with the will, the good pleasure, the purpose, the glory of God. Our prayers are so often according to man, governed by our will and desires and needs. Not so with the Holy Spirit. He prays according to God, as it literally says. He cannot pray for anything else because he is himself God. For the Spirit searches everything, as Paul writes in another letter, even the depths of God. Because of that, the Comforter always knows in any situation in which we find ourselves what glorifies God the most. How can the Father not hear the intercession of his own Spirit? He prays only what the Father wills. His knowledge of that will isn't limited to the Bible like ours. He knows the secret will of God as well. He knows everything that God has prepared beforehand. He knows the glory that will be revealed as well as the entire path to that glory. The glory in which the Father with his people and the whole creation will live forever in blessed peace. There's also one other ground for the Father hearing the Spirit's intercession. The Spirit intercedes, says Paul, for the saints, for the holy ones. That means for those washed in the blood of Christ. Because of Christ's redemptive work, the Father must and will hear the intercession of the Spirit. His perfect pleading and the fact that he prays for the saints is the guarantee that our prayers will be heard. When we pray, the Spirit Praise along and will God not always hear himself? These words, though offering us unspeakable consolation, also make us feel this big. This is another revealed mystery of our religion. Spirit praying in us to the Father, and the Father responding to the Spirit. God standing up for us in the things that concern himself. God pleading to God in our hearts. I don't understand it fully. But one thing I do know. My salvation, the outcome of my struggle in faith, my full redemption later on, it's all completely in God's hands. My life, now and eternally, is anchored in the dialogue between the Father and the Spirit. A dialogue that was made possible only because of Christ. It's on the basis of His atoning death that I have the Spirit. That He prays for me and comforts me and abides with me forever. Amen.